And I didn't get uh, didn't get Tommy the update uh, on this, but David Farr's meeting has been canceled there because of Peggy, his wife's uh, illness. And uh, certainly, we want to keep uh, Peggy Farr in our prayers. But uh, serious enough that he had to cancel that meeting. So that meeting has been uh, has been canceled. We want to keep her. Uh, Peggy and our prayers. They're fine, fine Christian couple. Done great work in the kingdom over the years. I uh, appreciate Tom's comment before he led the prayer, and I could not help but be reminded as he talked about the dog Haji, I believe was that dog's uh, name. Uh, as he talked about that true story, which was depicted in the movie here in America, but actually occurred in Japan, was the uh, where the uh, actual account was, but an amazing, an amazing story indeed. But I could not help but think about something, and I appreciated how Tom made the beautiful application that he did. But I could not help but think about what God, through the prophet Isaiah, said in Isaiah 1, verse 3, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but my people do not know. They do not consider. That was the case with Israel at that, uh, at that time, that they did not uh, consider what even... Uh, the animals knew, and I could not help but think of that when Tom uh, made that very appropriate uh, comment and application. But we need to make sure, as Tom admonished, that we are among those who do know, do consider, and do wait with great anticipation the return of our master to take us home uh, to be in heaven uh, forever. One of the key things that will determine that we are ready for that return is repentance. You remember that in Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5, Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I've often said that that clearly proves that faith alone does not save. Because if faith alone saves, then repentance would be unnecessary, and yet Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. You will be lost eternally. So our faith has to at least lead us to repent, doesn't it? And we know from looking at Scripture that it must lead us to do more than that, to confess that Jesus is the Christ, and then, as the Bible abundantly teaches, to be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of our sins. But what is the most difficult command in Scripture? I've asked that question before. Is it baptism? Some might think that it is because so many hesitate there and balk at the water's edge, as it were, and deny the essentiality of baptism. But is that the most difficult command in Scripture? I think not. I think it is repentance. I think repentance is the most difficult command because, you see, if someone truly repents, he or she will have no problem with being baptized, as the Scripture teaches, if repentance, true repentance, occurs. So I believe repentance is the key to our obedience. We must understand and appreciate what it means to truly repent. And this morning, I'd like for us to go back to an Old Testament passage and see a picture, a picture of repentance. That picture is painted for us in Jeremiah chapter 50. And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Jeremiah chapter 50, and let's set the background and the context for the picture of repentance that we're going to examine briefly this morning. And it's a very, very important examination because we do need to understand, appreciate, and be willing to truly repent if we need to repent. And even those who are Christians, we are in constant need of repentance because we fall short, don't we, 
of the standard, but as we walk in the light, as God is in the light, and as we confess our sins to the throne of heaven through Jesus Christ, we know that his blood continually cleanses us. But there are those, and maybe those this morning, who need to repent in the sense of becoming Christians and the process that repentance is a part of in so doing. Belief, repentance, confession, as we said, and then burial and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah chapter 50 is a picture of repentance, particularly in verses 4 and 5. Let's read those verses and then set the context or background for them. There the prophet writes in verse 4 of chapter 50, In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, with continual weeping they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. What is Jeremiah prophesying? He's prophesying about the return from Babylonian captivity. It was their rebellion, the people of Judah, in this case with Jeremiah, the southern kingdom, who did not learn the lesson from their northern sister Israel, the lesson that led to Israel's captivity, the northern kingdom, to the Assyrians. And 135 years later, they rebelled against God continually. They went into idolatry, and God removed them from the promised land and allowed them to be taken captive at the hands of the Chaldeans, at the hands of the Babylonians, but with that captivity that was so well deserved on their part, despite every effort that God had made to keep them from rebelling against him, despite every motivation that he had provided for them, every blessing that he had bestowed upon them, they rebelled against him nonetheless, and so he removed them from the land for 70 years, 70 years captivity, but he did not forget them. And he promised through the prophet that there would be a time when they would return. And when that return occurred, it occurred for the southern kingdom and for those that were still left from the northern kingdom who were there, they came back together, as we shall see from the text that we're looking at here in verses 4 and 5. And so that is the setting in which we find the verses we have just read that provide, I believe, a picture of repentance for us in any dispensation of time, including this, the final dispensation. What does repentance involve? You know, we talk about the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. We leave out the A to make that uh, alliteration work. Reading, writing, arithmetic, and those three R's are the key to uh, secular success, we say. But there are eight R's I want us to look at in this picture of repentance that will lead to spiritual success if they will truly motivate us to repent if we need to do so and to see the need to have that penitent spirit and that penitent attitude before God. The first of these R's is reason. We have to have a reason to repent. That is, we have to have a motivation and that motivation or that reason for repentance is seen in the phrase in verse 4, in those days and in that time, says the Lord. That reminds us that the prophecy of Jeremiah is going to be fulfilled, that it will be fulfilled, it was fulfilled. They did return from Babylonian captivity, and the realization that God's promise to avenge them had been fulfilled and that Babylon was going to be destroyed their captor was going to be destroyed. And that's what 
many of these uh, uh, words uh, deal with the destruction of Babylon. Yes, God used Babylon to take his people into captivity, but he was going to punish Babylon and he was going to bring the remnant of his people back home. What does that depict? What does the fulfillment of that promise say to us? And what did it say to them about the nature of the God who had allowed them to go into captivity? It said he was not going to forget them. He was going to forgive them. He was going to bring them back. His goodness, his love, his mercy was not going to be forgotten in regard to them. In those days and in that time reminds us that God's promise to avenge Israel upon Babylon, their punishers, that was going to come. And that should have reminded them, and no doubt did remind them, of the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And that's what we need to appreciate as we think about God and his nature today. In Psalm 107, verse 43, the last verse of that psalm, a psalm where the goodness and mercy of God is depicted in so many ways, the last verse of Psalm 107 reads this way. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. You see, God's people who had been taken captive to Babylon, when the promise to bring them home was fulfilled and the punishment was leveled against their captors, they were reminded of the loving kindness of the Lord. They were reminded of His goodness. And that's the reason for Repentance. Oh, I know that, that hell is a reality and we need to appreciate the fact that hell is a reality and that is a motivation to some extent. But it should be the goodness of God and the love of God that supremely motivates us and realizing how what God has done and how God has provided the giving of His only begotten Son that we might have the opportunity to come home to Him whom we left through our sin. Romans 2 and verse 4. The Apostle Paul there writes, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? There it is. Would you despise the riches of his goodness? Would you ignore his forbearance and his long-suffering, not realizing that the goodness of God should lead you to repent? That's the first R, is a reason. We need to understand and appreciate the goodness and the love and the mercy of God. In this same Roman letter a little bit later on over in chapter 12, remember what, what Paul implored the people there, the Christians who had become Christians to do? He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I left out a phrase. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by what? by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You see, he gave the reason for that presentation. The reason for the once-for-all presentation of laying it all on the line, making that commitment to God, is a recognition of his mercies towards you, a recognition of his goodness and his love. And yet the world as a whole ignores that love, disdains the love and the mercy and the goodness of God, and goes about its way rather than conforming to his way, motivated to do so by his goodness. 
reason. That's the first R in repentance in our picture here. In those days and in that time, a reminder that God remembered and did not forget his love and mercy toward them. Yes, he allowed them to be punished and they deserved it. His justice allowed that punishment. His mercy allowed their return. But the second R in repentance that we see in this picture in the Old Testament is remorse. Is remorse. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, here it is, with continual weeping they shall come. With continual weeping they shall come. Those tears had to be at least in part tears of remorse. There may have been some mingling with tears of joy we'll talk about a little bit later, but, but tears recognizing the wrong that they had done in turning their back upon God. And I'll tell you this, one of the two main reasons for their captivity, idolatry, the other was failure to keep the sabbatical year as God commanded. But when they came back from captivity, idolatry in Israel was never a problem again. Never. Oh, they had other problems, <laughs> but not idolatry. They came, obviously, with remorse over what they had done that brought to pass their judgment by God through Babylon. But look with me at 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 as we see this principle of remorse as it relates to repentance in every age, in every dispensation of time. Paul there writes, For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, Judas Iscariot comes to mind as an example of one after he betrayed the Lord who experienced the sorrow of the world. He regretted what he had done. But what did he do? He went out and hanged himself. He did not repent. But godly sorrow produces or leads to, the King James says, worketh repentance. It leads to repentance. Godly sorrow remorse, feeling that deep sorrow over sin. We have to first of all come to the recognition that we are in sin and then there has to be that remorse. Remorse is not repentance, but it is an integral part of the process. It is not repentance. Some think that that's it. You say, I'm sorry, and that's it. I've, I've repented. No, no, remorse leads to repentance. That's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, godly sorrow, remorse, the proper kind of remorse leads to repentance. It should lead us to repent, but it is not repentance itself. And so it's not simply enough to say, I'm sorry. I've got to act upon that sorrow. How do I do that? Third R, request. We see a request here. They shall come with continual weeping, verse 4, and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion. They shall ask the way to Zion. Oh, don't we wish that more people in this world today would ask the way to Zion, spiritual Zion, the church. That they would seek diligently and with open hearts the way to God and request, what shall I do? 
Far too many people are not even thinking about the question, won't even ask the question, what shall I do? But those on Pentecost Day, some of them, some 3,000 of them who ultimately obeyed the gospel did ask that question, didn't they? When they heard Peter and the other apostles preaching the gospel of Christ for the first time, they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? That was the request, a request that has to be a part of genuine repentance. I need to know what must I do? What must I do? They believed what they had heard, and so Peter didn't tell them, well, you need to believe. They already exhibited their faith, didn't they? They believed. So what did he tell them they needed to do? He said, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. They requested, what shall we do? Remember Saul of Tarsus? who became the great apostle Paul on that road to Damascus as he was on the mission of persecution and the Lord appeared to him. And when he had determined that this was the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he do? He made a request. What would thou have me do, Lord? Lord, what would thou have me do? Request. Request. It is a part of the repentance process. But then there needs to be return. That's the fourth R. There needs to be a return. Not just asking what to do, but then acting upon it by moving, by returning. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come. They and the children of Judah together. They shall come. They shall come. They and the children of Judah together. Remember we said that when the captivity was over and the people came back, those who had been taken into, northern, uh, into captivity with the northern tribes were scattered among those who later were taken captivity through the uh, Babylonian captivity. But all came back together. There was no separation of the kingdom any longer. Those who came back came back together. But that's the point. They came. They came back. They returned. We must come. We must return to the Lord whom we have left by our sins. Your sins have separated between you and your God, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Sin separates. There's no question about it. And because sin separates every single accountable human being, if we live long enough to reach an accountable age, we are going to fall into sin. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to return. Judah and Israel came back. They returned. They returned together with no division. And it reminds us that we must return to God together with no division. No Jew, no Gentile being separated any longer. All have been made one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. We're all to be made one in Christ Jesus. How? By returning as a part of our repentance. And that return involves the cessation of sinful activity. You can't return without ceasing the sin in which you are involved. Otherwise, you haven't returned, have you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul wrote, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You obeyed the gospel. And that washing refers to baptism. But what is he saying here? You had to give up all these activities. You could not effect a return to God and say, okay, I'm returning, but I'm not leaving these sinful activities. No, Paul said, such were some of you, but you what? You returned. In other words, you renounced. You renounced your sin and you returned to the God from whom you had been separated. How? By your own sins. And so return is a part of repentance. Jesus said, come to me. Return to me, in effect. Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, as Peter referred to it in one of his epistles. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek or gentle and lowly in spirit, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come, return. Return to me. That is a part of the picture of repentance that we see here. They and the children of Judah shall come together. They shall come together. And what then is logically the next part of the picture? Reunion. When you return, there is reunion. Come, verse 5, and let us join ourselves to the Lord. Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord. There's the reunion. There's the reconciliation. As we said, man's sin separates him from God. But God, through his mercy, has made possible the reunion with him through his son, Jesus Christ, in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And when we avail ourselves of that sacrifice by obedience to the gospel, which includes the repentance about which we're speaking here, then there is a joyous reunion that occurs. In Romans chapter 7, the apostle Paul talks about the fact that we have become dead, Christians have, to the law, the law of, Christ, the law of uh, Moses, through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that you should bear fruit to God. There we are married to Christ, a reunion with Christ. How is that achieved? How is it made possible? Repentance is a part of the process. Culminating in what? Being buried in baptism. Go back one chapter to Romans 6, 3 and 4, where Paul writes, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There's that reunion. There's that joining to Christ that culminates in baptism. But without repentance, <coughs> baptism would be of absolutely no effect. Would it do anyone any good to be baptized if one never repented, never renounced his sin, never came out of the sin? Well, of course not. He'd just be getting wet, wouldn't he? But the reunion takes place when genuine repentance occurs. 
As I asked earlier, who will balk at the water's edge? Who will balk at the edge of the water and say, I don't want to be baptized. I've truly repented. But no, I'm not going to be baptized. No, to be reconciled, to enjoy that reunion, the honest seeker of truth understands and appreciates that God has designated that only in the waters of baptism will the blood, not the water that cleanses, but only in that water will the blood be applied. That's what God has chosen to do. And I dare not question what God has chosen and what God has decreed. And if I genuinely repent, I don't believe I will. That's why I say I think repentance is the most difficult command. And once I'm past that, I'm not going to balk at baptism. But then, what about the next R? After reunion... After reunion, there is what? Remembrance. Remembrance. In a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. I've got to remember something. What is it? I have to remember the covenant, the covenant into which I've entered when I am baptized into Christ. That's not the end of the process. Oh, it's the end of the process by which I come out of the world and into Christ. Yes, I'm raised to walk in newness of life. But come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a what? In a perpetual covenant, a remembrance that is made that will not be forgotten. When I come forth from the watery grave, having believed, repented, confessed Christ, I dare not forget the covenant to which I have committed myself, the new covenant, the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the beginning. It's the end of the process that brings us from the world into Christ. But it's the beginning of the Christian life. It brings us into the covenant relationship with God and Christ. And I must ever remember that covenant and be obedient continually to that covenant. But the seventh is restitution. That's the seventh R, restitution. And it's not specifically mentioned in the text here, but I think it's implied in the return and in what they had to do when they returned. What did they have to do? They had to rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed because of their disobedience to God and what God had allowed a heathen nation to do in destroying the temple. Nebuchadnezzar had desecrated the temple. He had taken up the vessels from the temple. The temple had been destroyed. And now upon their return, they were to rebuild that temple. That's restitution. They were to make restitution for the sins that they had been guilty of that had led to the destruction of the place where God met with his people under that former covenant, the law of Moses. And in the book of Haggai, you see that they were somewhat negligent initially once the foundation was laid in getting the job finished. And Haggai was one of the prophets who came to them and admonished them to get to work and get it done. And get it done. And they did. And that reminds us that when repentance occurs, 
restitution will be a part of that process as far as it's possible for us to make restitution. And I stress as far as it's possible for us to make restitution because you can't always make restitution for everything you've ever done before you became a Christian. Can a murderer restore a life if he has murdered? Can he be forgiven of murder? Absolutely. Can he go to heaven if he truly repents, becomes a child of God, and lives faithfully the Christian life even if he has murdered? Yes. It is said, and I think it's documented, that Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, and if you remember that name and the horrific things that he did, that before he was, I think, ultimately killed by someone else in prison, he became a Christian. He obeyed the gospel of Christ, showing that even with the atrocities that he had done, that he could be forgiven. And I do not doubt his sincerity in doing what he did. Jeffrey Dahmer. Could he make restitution by bringing out the lives and put together again the bodies he had dismembered and bring them back to life? Of course not. So when I say restitution is a part of repentance as far as possible, that's what we mean, as far as possible. Somebody steals my watch and then repents of it and says I'm so sorry and I truly repent of taking your watch and I said well I appreciate that and could I now have my watch back and said no I'm going to keep the watch but I'm truly repented of it <laughs> he hasn't truly repented of it because restitution is possible there isn't it and that's what we need to appreciate about the repentance process finally the eighth hour in repentance is rejoicing. Rejoicing. Getting back to the weeping that we alluded to earlier in the lesson. When they came, he says they'll come with continual weeping. Yes, the weeping of remorse over what they had done, but perhaps mingled with some tears of joy that they were getting to come home. And I can't help but think of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, who after he came forth from the waters of baptism, Philip saw him no more. He went on his way rejoicing. And when one truly repents, the logical outgrowth of repentance is rejoicing when one has completed that process of obedience to the gospel by being buried in baptism for the remission of sins. There is an Old Testament passage in Ezra that reminds us of the rejoicing that God's people experienced when Ezra came back with that group initially. In Ezra 3 and verse 11, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They had begun the restitution process and they were involved in the rejoicing as well. I think we have a beautiful picture of repentance in this Old Testament passage pertaining to God's people of old as they came home. Have you come home? Have you returned to the God from whom you have been separated by sin? Your sins have separated between you and your God. Your iniquities. But there is, thanks be to God, a way home. And if you haven't 
availed yourself of that way, we plead with you to do it this morning. How? By expressing your faith or belief in Jesus as the Christ, by repenting, by confessing him to be the Christ, and by being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Believe or die in your sins, John 8, 24. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess Jesus, he'll confess you before the Father, Matthew 10, 32. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Jesus said it, Mark 16, 16. That's where the blood is applied in that burial in water. Do we have enough faith to go down into that water to be cleansed not by the water but by the blood? If we've truly repented, surely we will. And if that's your need, we plead with you to do that. If you need to come home in repentance as a wayward child to return for that reunion through confession of sin that's been committed publicly, we plead with you to do that now as we stand and sing to encourage you.